Grab your Bible. We are back in 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And uh, why don't you just take a deep breath this morning. Lean back a little bit in your seat because uh, today is really not about you. Uh, I am going to have the uh, unenvious uh, responsibility of preaching to myself this morning. So uh, you, you have the delight of just sitting back and watch me convict my own profession. 2 Timothy chapter 4 in these first few verses, it's an indictment to the man who stands right here. All right? So you just relax a little bit. Uh, Steve likes to tell me every now and then after a message that uh, the Word of God just smacked us right between the eyes. Well, today, it's me who's getting the punch, okay? So you just lean back, enjoy this Sunday, okay? If, if you skip this Sunday and you're listening to it by tape, you missed out because this is an easy one on you, maybe. Maybe I'll find a way to bring it back around and give you a little jab. If, uh, if you're to think of what a preacher is, uh, I'd be a little worried about what the, the picture you get in your mind is. Spurgeon had a pretty high view of what a preacher was. He would say to his students that if you're called to be a preacher, don't stoop to be a king. Think about that. That's a high view of what it means to be a preacher. If you're called to be a preacher, don't you dare stoop to be a king. Now, our view of what it means to be a preacher is, uh, as one man said, a preacher is the guy who goes down deeper, stays down longer, and comes up drier than anybody else. And what he means by that is we go down so deep sometimes that nobody has any idea what we're talking about. We stay down so long sometimes that we bore the heck out of everybody in the room. And uh, we come up drier, meaning that we have no ability to uh, seemingly relate what we're talking about to anything that has to do with what's going on out there in real life. And unfortunately, that's probably more of what we think of as a preacher. Second Timothy chapter 4, you're going to see really this chronology through what it means to be the one who stands and declares, thus says the Lord. Paul's going to say to Timothy, here is what a preacher should do. Here's what he should look like. Here's what his attitude should be. Here's how you start and here's how you finish. And it's a hard word for my profession. This is the premier text in the New Testament on what it means to be a preacher. And I'm not just talking about what it means to be a pastor, but what it means to stand and declare, this is what God has to say to us. And so this is an indictment for those who do that and don't follow these guidelines. Verse 1 says this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I solemnly charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead. Now just sense the weight of this very first verse here. And by the way, these are the beginning words of Paul's final words of all time. All right? This is the last chapter he's going to write us. After this, his time has come to an end. He's going to say at the end of this passage that he's being poured out as a drink offering. The time of his departure is near. He's gone. God's about to remove him and his, his struggle is over. And so feel the weight of these final words to his understudy, Timothy, the man who he's hoping will fill his footsteps. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his 
kingdom. What are you doing to me, Paul? What are you saying here? Paul is giving a warning in this first verse. He's heaping the weight of the, of the pressure, of the seriousness of this calling upon Timothy and all of us who would come after Timothy who declare the word of God, who stand before the people of God and attempt to herald the word of God. He says, this is a solemn warning to you that there is a king and he is coming with his entire kingdom. And when the king comes, everything better be right. That's the weight of this very first verse. And so he, he passes these words to Timothy, and Timothy should now, in the very first verse of this chapter, just feel the weight of the, of the solemnness and the responsibility. It's not, just, it's not just this guy who's gone to the dungeon and is writing these words from the dungeon. That would be weight enough. But he just heaps weight upon weight upon weight to help Timothy and the rest of us who would come after Timothy to understand how solemn this responsibility is. There is a weight to declaring, thus says the Lord. James chapter 3, verse 1 says this to would-be teachers. Not many of you should be teachers and thus incur the stricter judgment. Now, if you're a teacher out there in the world, that holds true for you. That teachers, in a sense, you hold to a stricter judgment. You should know what you're talking about. You should live up to what you're talking about. It shouldn't be uh, do as I say, not as I do. There is that sense where all teachers across the board in life incur a stricter judgment. But in regards to Scripture, that verse is talking to Timothy's. It's talking to Paul's. It's talking to men who would stand behind a pulpit, open the Word of God, and declare to the people, this is what God has to say to us. There is a special, reserved, if you will, judgment that I get to incur that you don't have to face necessarily. Isn't that nice? <laughs> Sit back, just enjoy, relax. Jesus, on the sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, He that denies the least of these commandments so as to teach others shall be considered the least in the kingdom, referring to those who would open the word of God and teach the commands of God. You take them lightly. You take them for granted. You don't, you don't do them justice. You become what, what essentially is the harshest judgment that Christ will dole out in his, in his walking on the earth. You become the least in the kingdom. You understand the solemnness here in Paul's understanding of what it means to be the preacher? These aren't just Paul's last words either. If you think about it, if you want to flip with me, it won't be on the screen. Uh, but if you go to Revelation, the last words of your entire Bible are a solemn warning to any who would come after the last words of Scripture the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes take water of life without cost. Wow, that's an encouragement. But after that, here's how we wrap it up. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and of the holy city. Do you understand the weight of the one who would declare, thus says the Lord? God's not messing around. This isn't a game that we do up here. It's not, it's not just a career. It's not just for kicks and giggles. It's not just to be the guy that everybody else looks at. There is a weight of responsibility. 
that ought be on the shoulders of the one who opens the word of God before the people of God. We miss that very often. We miss that. Today, a preacher isn't seen really as he once was. It used to be that the church was at the center of the community, wasn't it? It was on the town square. And it wasn't just by accident. It was symbolic that the church stood and represented what was central to the, to the best interests of humanity. And the preacher would be uh, with the governing officials, the one that the community as a whole would look to for truth and righteousness and justice. And now, what are we, you know? Uh, they've taken us off the square. And uh, the preacher, well, he becomes, um, at best, the place we go in our communities for help with benevolence. And that's fine. That's good. And we do those things. But really, that's when we get the call nowadays. That's when we are needed, is when, when, when somebody else can't help them, we send them to the last resort for help. Pastor, can you do anything for so-and-so? You guys are helpful down there. Um, at the very least, that, that's at best. At the very least, we're just entertainment, cheap entertainment. Uh, the new skating ring has opened in Jefferson. My wife went online this morning because my son's all excited, wants to go to the skating ring. She looked on there, and it's like eight gazillion dollars to go to the skating ring just to get in. And then you got to buy, you got to like rent your skates. Uh, we're cheap entertainment by all indications. When you think of the preacher, what do you think of? Again, uh, I, I'm kind of glad I don't, I'm not able to read your mind. Unfortunately, uh, the, do, the job just doesn't have the reverence that it once did. Uh, when I was first in the ministry, every now and then somebody would refer to me as Reverend Ruiz, and uh, I, just, I just didn't like the way that sounded. Uh, my dad especially, he just likes, hey, Reverend, uh, and it just irks me a little bit. I don't know what it is, but it just doesn't seem like I should be called Reverend anything. There's no, I don't have any reverence. But what I've come to understand through the help of the, the, uh, the authority that God puts on the position is that there is a reverence to the calling. And when you look at the man, the reverence isn't for the man. The reverence is for the God that stands behind the man. So he is reverend, but only because of the God that stands behind him. Does that make sense? And we've, we've lost that. And I, I still am not even comfortable being called reverend. Don't, don't try it, Steve. Stop. I know you're making mental note of that. But there ought to be some sense of reverence because God puts it there. We have probably caused some of this erosion ourselves as preachers because we've removed much of the symbolism in churches and in leadership. We've removed much of the symbolism that helped us in days past, that kind of set the tone. It used to be that we would have this massive pulpit here that was center stage. Yeah, now, look at this. They give me a music stand. Yeah, thank you. All right. Uh, it, you, that, that's all I wanted right there. I'm satisfied. It used to be that, that symbolically there would be this, this giant wooden pulpit that the Word of God would be opened upon. It was elevated 
symbolically. It was center stage symbolically. And now, you know, we get this. Uh, a lot of times we don't even uh, bring out a Bible. We just preach from, you know, putting it up there. You don't bring your Bible. Um, symbolically, you know, you know, we've just kind of lost some of those things. We've gone to uh, comfort in a lot of ways. You know, we, we, you know, we dress down now. We wear jeans. We wear khakis, flip-flops. We want everybody to feel comfortable. And that's cool. I get it. It's not really about the thing. Do you, you get what I'm saying? It's about what maybe it helped us to understand that now we should have been smart enough to keep without the actual symbols, but we've unfortunately lost the symbols and the importance that they helped us to understand. There's no weight to what we, what we do. There's no solemnness to the calling. It is, it is a solemn duty. Um, what happened? Well, what happened, if I just give you a little bit of my estimation here, when humanity started getting too smart for God and this whole God stuff became kind of archaic, old-fashioned, uh, we as preachers, we started juggling for entertainment. And when we removed the solemnness and replaced it with our juggling, uh, the guy who taught me the Bible, he said that the first time he went to preach, his mentor could tell that he was scared to death. And he said, the guy grabbed him before he went out there, and he said, now listen, this, this is in Texas, so you can, you can put in your own accent and emphasis here. He said, listen, boy, don't go out there and start juggling. We throw javelins from the pulpit. And he said, I felt the weight right there. It didn't help me very much with my anxiety, but I felt the weight of the calling. And what he was saying is, we, we don't just come up here and we just start tossing around as entertainment for the gathered, entertained. We're here to throw javelins into the heart of men with the truth of God. It's a solemn duty because God is listening. God is listening. And in the final evaluation, those of us who open the Word of God and proclaim the Word of God, we have... We have this unique and special encounter with our God where we get to answer for what we did with his word. Are you feeling the weight? Verse 1, it's kind of a warning, isn't it? Verse 2, there's a command. Preach the word, Timothy. Preach the word. And if you want to add to it, if you want to put some parentheses in here, you could add, preach the word, nothing other than the word, no more no less, preach the word. Don't just get up and talk about the Bible. Actually teach the Bible. Preach the word. The word he uses here for preach is the word caruso in the Greek. Here's what the word caruso was typically used for, and Timothy and his readers would understand this very well. When the king or a prince came to town, there would be a forerunner. All right. Ever, ever wondered where the forerunner imagery came from? There would be a forerunner that ran out in front of this king and declared to everyone who was in the town, the king is coming. And he would bring a message very often of the king. Now what he would not do is go on and on about what he thought and what he wanted and what he thought uh, the king might say. It was exactly what the king had him say. And Paul says, we are to be carusos of the word. We're to be heralds of the word. We're not to get up and talk about this and that, whatever we want to talk about. We are to herald, we are to declare, thus says God. 
It's not about what my opinion is of God. The preacher doesn't have the liberty to go on and on about what, what his commentary even is on God. We explain, we break down the word of God in order to help us understand the very word of God. We're not to preach about the Bible, but to preach the Bible. Uh, you know the one reason the preacher's duty doesn't get the due reverence it should? Or one of the reasons? I think maybe the main reason. It's because we've, we've punted the word part. We've punted the scriptures. When you stand to talk about this or that, and you tack a memory verse on the front, and you tack a memory verse on the back, that's just not... That's just not going to cut it in Paul's estimation. Our job isn't to to talk about whatever we want to talk about up here. There's a solemn responsibility of the preacher to preach the word. Nothing more, nothing less, frankly, nothing other. Uh, By the way, do you know the context of these verses? If you go back to chapter 3, how does he end it? All what? Scripture is God-breathed, Timothy, and it is profitable, all of it, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God, you, Timothy, and all those that would come after you in the same vein may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, preach the Word. You see? Preach the Word. It's, It's inspired. It's the very breath of God. Don't do anything else. We don't need anything else. The world needs God's words. Caruso, the word, herald the king's proclamation. You don't get to say what you want to say. Verse 1, we get a warning. The king is coming. Verse 2, it's our orders. Herald his word. Keep going in verse 2. Look at the preacher's attitude. It's one of readiness. It's one of readiness. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Preach the word. Be ready, Timothy. There's an attitude of readiness. The Greek word is epihistomai. It means to histomai, stand, epi, stand upon, stand on. It's the idea of standing, uh, standing up straight and firm. It's often used in, in New Testament times for portraying a soldier standing at attention, ready for duty. Now that's what Paul has to say to Timothy. Preach the word. Be ready. Stand at attention. For when the king calls, you be ready. How long? How often? What's the term of my readiness? In season and out of season. Let me explain. In season, agricultural terms. In season is when we gather in the harvest. That's the point. When harvest comes, we're in season, and it's joyous, and it's great. And there are obvious fruit and results. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, you preach the word, and you be ready. You be at attention like a good soldier of the king. In season, yeah, when there's great crops and great harvest, but also, Timothy, and Paul knew well, be ready out of season. What does that mean? That means when you're just doing the digging, 
when you're just doing the fertilizing, when you're just pulling the weeds, when you're just hauling the dirt, when you're working your fingers to the bone and and you have no fruit, you have no results, nobody's responding, nothing is happening. We sing and nobody sings. You preach it anyway. You be ready, Timothy. You preach the word. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing other. Preach the word Always be ready, in season and out of season. That's the preacher's term of duty. In Acts 2, Peter preaches, 2,000 are converted in season. You get to Acts 7, I think it is. A guy named Stephen, he preaches and he gets 2,000 stones upside his head. In season, preach. Out of season? Timothy, we don't have the luxury of stopping. You keep preaching. Even when it seems like foolishness to those who are hearing. Even when there's seemingly no response. You never know the work that God is doing in the dirt. The magic that God is doing in the heart of a man. The heart of a woman. So you preach. That's your duty. As a good soldier, you be ready. Whatever the post God asks of this preacher, whatever posts he asks me to man, I have to do it faithfully. There might, there might be a great response, there might be no response. The preacher gives the word whether it's received or not. It matters not. I have to remain ready. I stand a post and I fire a round of the word of God whenever God says, fire. Keep going. This preaching, it isn't, it isn't just communicating of facts. We don't just preach in season and out of season. He tells us how we preach. Watch this. The preacher preaches the word for change. Reprove and rebuke, Timothy. That's how we do it. We've talked about what you do, how often you do it. Now, let me tell you how you do it. Reprove and rebuke, rebuke in your preaching of the word. Now, let me explain this. This simply means that we're not, just, we're not just spouting out facts. My job is not to just stand up here and read you the Bible. Notice that the command is to preach the Word, not just to teach the Word. We're not just here for educational purposes. We stand here and open this book and declare, Thus says the Lord, so that when you encounter God in His words, you are changed. We preach for change. That's what he means when he says, reprove and rebuke. We're not just juggling, we're throwing javelins into hearts. We're calling men to obedience. We're calling men and women and children to change their way. It's not just cheap entertainment. It's not some just flippant thing we take upon ourselves. It's the solemn duty that God wants man to change. And we're declaring that word. Repent. The king is coming. We are his heralds. In uh, Texas, they'd tell you, boy, make sure you're just not bumping your gums. That's the country way to say it. We're not just up here flapping our lips. We preach for change, not just for education, not just for knowledge, not just for information. We preach for change. And when necessary... 
We're not just reproving, we're rebuking. Now, let me, let me explain to you the difference between these two. They're similar words. A reproof is a general correcting by putting the truth out there. I teach you the truth, and it calls everyone to adjust their life and adjust the course of their life so that your life reflects the truth. That's reproof. That's putting the truth out there so that you understand it and you can correct yourself. A rebuke is not a general teaching of the right way. It's a specific calling out of sin in lives so that we bring ourselves back into that straight and narrow. Does that make sense? Uh, let, me, let me explain in a different way. Uh, football coaches are, are really good at both of these. Very often from high school into college, I, I saw college football coaches especially uh, make an art form of this. Uh, most of the time, it would happen something like this. We'd get out there, and uh, it would be a hot day or just a, a day that we were just tired, and, and coach would he, he would he would let it go for a little while, let it go for a little while, and then he would call an end to it, and he'd blow the whistle, and he'd call everybody up. And you knew something was wrong because practice was only going for like 10, 15 minutes. And he'd get everybody around, and he'd just stand there for a few minutes thinking about what he's exactly going to say, and now you're wondering what he's going to say, and then he would just let you have it. He'd say, listen, this is not how we practice. This isn't it. We've got no energy. We've got no enthusiasm. You don't act like you want to be out here. Nobody's flying around. Nobody's hitting. Uh, this isn't how this team practices. We're going to go back to the gate, and we're going to come back out here, and we're going to start all over again. That's a reproof. It's putting the general sentiment of how things should be out there and letting us adjust our course to it. A rebuke, however, is what a coach might decide to go on to if he really wants to get your attention is that he would grab somebody by the face mask, stand them up, and say, now, this whole thing is your fault. And usually it'd be a quarterback. That's just, that's just the, uh, the price of being one of the leaders on the team. This is probably your fault. You should be leading this team. You should be setting the tone for how this practice goes. And you've been just out here horse playing and going half speed the whole time. And so now we've gone from a, a general indictment to a specific rebuke of an individual. And sometimes our preaching has to not just be a reproof, but sometimes, church, listen, and are you sensing the weight of the responsibility of this? Sometimes we got to call out the sin. And that's not my choice. That's not this guy's choice. But preaching doesn't just include teaching. It is reproof and rebuke. It's part of the job. But we don't stop there. Those two are seemingly negative, but the Bible is also a positive force and should be as well the preaching of the Bible. Not just for reproof, not just for rebuking, but it's also to be taught for exhorting. Maybe yours says encouraging. The word in the Greek is parakaleo. It means to come alongside. could be translated to be an encourager, to be a helper, could be translated as an advocate, meaning like a, a, a lawyer, an attorney on your side. That's what parakaleo, that's the picture it paints. And so, Timothy, you preach the word in season and out of season. You be ready. You reprove, you rebuke, but you also parakaleo. You come alongside the flock. Listen, our job up here is not just to beat you until you're bleeding and then send you on your way. We give the truth, but then we come alongside just as the parakaleo. You know where that word is also used? Who is the parakaleo? It's the Holy Spirit. This is the term used for the primary objective of the Holy Spirit coming alongside of us, church. 
The preacher is not just to bring down the hammer and correct. He's to come alongside and exhort and encourage to be a helper, an advocate, your attorney, if you will. Your parakaleo. So we don't just expose the wounds. We, we bandage them with the word of God. By the way, in Paul's estimation, preaching the word of God does all that stuff. You remember the context? Back to chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for what? Not just teaching and for reproof and for correction, but for what? Training in righteousness. It is a positive force. Do you understand the weight of the responsibility? We don't just reprove and rebuke. We are exhorting and encouraging with the word of God. It is so needed. If the preacher doesn't do his job, that is not done. We don't just encourage. See how he qualifies it? We encourage with what? Great patience. That phrase, great patience, is used very often, I believe, when describing God's attitude towards us. How about that for a weight? Timothy, you be like God. When you preach the word, you reprove, you rebuke, but you exhort, and you exhort, you encourage, you come alongside that body, and you do it with great patience. Just like your God, Timothy. You do it with great patience. He doesn't stop there, though, does he? You do it with great patience and instruction. Ours is a, is a guiding and a shepherding and a shaping role. Do you understand the weight of this calling? The preacher isn't what he used to be because, as I said earlier, we punted Scripture. We punted the Word of God from our teaching at some point. Why did we do that? One of the reasons we did that is because at some, at some juncture in our history, at least in America, we got tired of preachers who did a good job of, of reproving and rebuking but, but never came around the side of their people and exhorted them, encouraged them. They never had great patience with them. They never finished the job. Oh, they were great at, at, at slicing and dicing, but they, they were horrible at bandaging. Uh, we used to call these preachers hellfire and brimstone preachers. By God, they'd bring the word and you'd walk out lower than you ever had been in your whole life. Preacher brought it today, boy, I feel terrible. <laughs> and you know what? We rebelled against that. We rebelled against that. As an institution, we said, oh, that's not any good. And you know what we did? We jumped out of one ditch all the way over to the other ditch. And now we got rid of the pulpit. We wear flip-flops and khakis and everything's cool and everybody's comfortable. We got a coffee shop out there. Bring your coffee in. We're not going to hellfire and brimstone you. Everybody just be cool. It's all right. Let me talk to you about five ways you can be a better dad. And we lightened the load. But perhaps we lightened it too much. Paul says, preach the word. Preach the word. All parts of it. In some places, it's going to reprove you. In some places, there's going to be a need for rebuke. In some places, there's going to be a need for an encouragement and a coming alongside. We've got to do the whole thing, not end in one ditch or another. We preach the word with a seriousness and a tenderness, and we do it with a sense of urgency. Why? Look at verse 3. People won't always listen, Paul tells Timothy. Verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but wanting to have their ears tickled, 
They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. The time will come where men who would once sit under the teaching decide, you know what, Uh, I'm not going to remain under the load. That's what endure means. There is a weight to Scripture. There is a weight to the responsibility God puts on us of truth. And there will be a time, Paul knows very well, when people will shuck the load. They'll push it aside. They're not going to want to carry it. They don't want to deal with what God has to say. They don't want to deal with righteousness. They don't want to deal with holiness. They don't want to deal with sin. They don't want to deal with what Paul calls sound doctrine. That word sound is the word we get our word hygiene from. Isn't that interesting? They don't want to deal with the cleanliness of doctrine. They don't want to deal with cleaning it up. So what do they do? Well, instead, wanting to have their ears tickled, he says, meaning not wanting to have their heart cut to the, to the quick, not wanting to have an operation done by the Word of God that, that is sharper than any two-edged sword that does this work slicing between joint and marrow, Scripture says. That's the work it does. It, 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 it operates at a depth that many of us don't want to let it operate, frankly. And so instead, you know what we're willing to do? We're willing to let you just kind of just pat us on the head, tickle us, on the back of our ear with, you know, a message about this or that, you know, don't step too hard on my toes. Don't bring the word of God too hard. Don't let it cut me open. If you do, well, I'll just step out from underneath that, that load and I'll go somewhere else where they won't put that, that responsibility. They won't put the weight of those truths upon me. So what do they do? They accumulate for themselves. Notice the focus, themselves. Teachers in accordance with their own, what? Desires. Instead of bending their lives to fit the Bible, they'll find a preacher to bend the Bible to fit their lives. Let me say that again. Instead of of bending their lives to fit the Bible, they find a preacher, a church, that'll bend the Bible to fit around their lives. And they'll accumulate for themselves teachers that meet their desires. Uh, Can I tell you this happens so subtly, so subtly. And the enemy is very crafty in how how he starts us down that road. No one ever leaves a church where they're teaching the Word of God. No one ever leaves saying, I just want it easier. I don't want to hear that. Uh, there's always something other. There's always something else. It's always subtle. It's always seemingly subconscious. Did you notice, by the way, that the Bible teaching pastor in the passage is seemingly in the singular? And the other guys? The guys who will accommodate what you would like to hear, they're in the plural. (laughs) Uh, Howard Hendricks, professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, he would tell his students, he said, boys, if you get out there and you teach the word, you preach the word, don't worry, there won't be much competition. What did he mean by that? 
what he meant was what Paul's saying right here. There's a whole lot of guys out there that'll put their finger in the wind and accommodate to the winds of this world. And they'll follow the trends of the day. And they'll, they'll adapt their church. They'll adapt their preaching. They'll adapt all their priorities to fit what you will tolerate. Paul says those are a dime a dozen. Those are a dime a dozen. Timothy, though, listen. Here I am in a dungeon about to lose my life. Don't you do it. Don't you do it. You preach the word. Paul's, Timothy's, they're rare. Uh, the lady who puts our podcast and our sermons on the internet, every now and then she sends me a, a chart of how many times they get listened to. Most of the time it's depressing. Um, <laughs> uh, I think my mom in Florida, because she doesn't work her computer very well, she probably clicks on and off like a hundred times, and so that accounts for most of the listening out there. But if you, are, if you are out there and you're listening to this message, somehow you've gotten this message, um, let me just say that if you have a pastor that stands on the Word of God and do not, uh, does not trim his sails to every wind of accommodation in this Christian so-called world, if you have that kind of pastor who goes to the Word who seeks as best he can. I'm not even saying he has to be good, but seeks as best he can to preach the word. Uh, please go home and tell that guy thank you. Encourage that guy. They are the standard according to Scripture, but they are not the norm. They are rare. Our seminaries are putting guys out left after right who go into the pastorate who have no foundation, no understanding of the solemn duty that it is on the pastorate, that it is on the preacher to declare, thus says the Lord, and the weight that comes with it. We're cranking them out left and right. We're trimming our sails left and right. If you've got that preacher, tell him, I'm behind you. Keep doing it. Whether it's in season or whether it's out of season, mind you. Preach the word. Most of us, unfortunately, in this profession, pointing back here, most of us have turned into waiters, taking orders from our customers. If we don't serve you in the, in the way you want, number one, you know what happens? We lose your tip. Then you know what happens? We'll lose your business. And eventually, you know what will happen? We'll just lose our job. And so... We'll serve you well. Is that what God calls us to do? No. Preach the word. Preach the word. Why? Why does it work like that? Why do I, why do I call us, unfortunately, waiters? Because if we don't do that, if we don't serve well, you know what the fear is? Fear is that there's ten other Burger Kings down the road that will have it your way. Hey, do you understand? Do you, do you understand the weight of the calling for the man who has to preach the word? He doesn't get to accommodate your desires. 
at every whim, at every want, at every opinion. He's to preach the word. Um, heard an illustration <laughs> about a uh, battleship captain. He was out at sea in a terrible storm. It was foggy. It was nighttime. It was dark. Lost all of his instruments. And uh, so he put, he put lookouts all around the ship of his battleship. And uh, in a high sea, he had one of his lookouts come back and say, Captain, I see a light up ahead. And so he ordered his, uh, what do you call the guy that flashes the light? What is that guy? What does he do? Flashes the light, Morse code, what is it? Yeah, the signal man. He says to the signal man, signal that ship. Change your course 20 degrees. We are on collision. The light signals back. Advised, change your course 20 degrees. Captain didn't like that. I am a captain, he signals back. Change your course 20 degrees. Light signals back. I'm a seaman second class, but I advise you to change your course. Now the captain's very upset. I am a battleship. Change your course. Light signals back. I'm a lighthouse. And, that, and that's the word of God. And the man who declares the word of the Lord, um, it has to be an immovable thing because the word of God is immovable. And can I tell you, it's very often for that guy a lonely job to stand in that lighthouse shining that light. Verse 4, So Timothy, look what he says, Be sober in all things. Be sober in all things. What does it mean to be sober? It's kind of what you think. Don't be drunk. What does a drunk person look like? They're falling all over the place. They're dizzy. They can't see well. Timothy, you be sober in all things. In the heat of this battle, when it's hard, out of season, when it's lonely, when people are bailing, you be sober. He's saying, keep your wits about you. Don't be dazed and confused. Walk straight, Timothy. Walk straight. Despite what's going on around you, despite the seas that are raging, it's a lighthouse that you're declaring, the word of the Lord. Stand firm, walk straight. Be sober. Be sober. He doesn't stop there. Don't just keep your wits about you. We are to endure hardship. Let me tell you why this is here. Paul knew that it was hard to stay on course, even when what you're doing doesn't seem to be working. But God says, keep doing it. Uh, that was the majority of Paul's life. God says, keep preaching. <laughs> Paul's saying, it doesn't seem to be really working here from the bottom of a dungeon. But he keeps doing it. Paul knows very well and in his last words, he says to Timothy, when all things seem to be going crazy and haywire around you, don't lose your wits. Don't lose your wits. You walk straight. And you endure the hardship. If you circled that word endure, and you had to draw a line back to a previous verse where this same word occurred again, they will not endure sound doctrine. Timothy, 
you walk straight and you endure the hardship that's going to come from all this that surrounds preaching the word. They may not endure. You endure. You remain under the load. You endure the hardship. I found that holding to truth attracts conflict of all sorts. That's true in all of life. It's especially true in regards to God's truth. Holding to truth attracts conflicts of all sorts. Hardship seems inevitable, according to Paul, for those who preach the word. Might I remind you, he's in a dungeon. He knows very well. But he's calling Timothy to follow in his footsteps. Um, had coffee with a pastor this week from a whole other state. Had met him once, but uh, never really talked about preaching or the pastorate. And uh, he got a hold of me and said, Hey, can we just, can we just sit down and have coffee? I said, Sure. So we met at my office, McDonald's. And, uh, and we, we spent about two hours uh, just encouraging one another. I think he thought that I might be able to encourage him. But just hearing that he goes through a lot of the same stuff that I do was an encouragement to me. And we just shared with one another. And this guy, he's probably uh, in his 50s. Um, at one point, he just began to weep in front of me right there in McDonald's. And he said, here I am. I'm trying to do my best. I'm trying to love these people. And they're beating me up. And he just wept. And all I could, all I could do was, was sit with him. Um, preaching the word often brings conflict. Spoke with uh, Preston last night, our former worship pastor. He said, you remember so-and-so from seminary? Worked at that church we used to go to? Yeah, I remember him. He's in uh, so-and-so state now. He said, I just saw him. We just went through on our way back to Texas. Spent some days with him. I knew he was having a hard time. He called me two days after I left. He said, Preston, I'm done. He said, I've been here five years. He said, I'm just getting beat to death. He said, he said I'm not really good at what I do, uh, but I'm, I'm trying as hard as I can. I'm trying to preach the word, and nobody seems to want to change. Nobody seems to want to adjust their course to, to the lighthouse. My words, not his. Nobody wants, to, nobody wants to adapt to the word of God. He said, I, I'm done. He said, life shouldn't be like this. He said, I'm done. When I got my seminary diploma, they shake your hand, hand you the diploma, and say, good luck. Why good luck? Coming out of seminary, this was 2000, the statistic was that uh, the average pastor would make it 18 months on the field before he had to go on somewhere else. 18 months. All the faithful preacher can do, it seems, is to walk straight, Endure hardship. And Paul goes on, verse 5, do the work. Do the work. This solemn duty, it is a job. There is, there is a work. But it's not just any kind of work. He says, do the work of what? Of an evangelist. Timothy, don't forget why we're here. You're going to have to reprove. You're going to have to rebuke. You're going to have to exhort and encourage. You're going to have to have great patience instructing these people. Believe me, I've been there. 
You've got to be ready in season and out of season. You've got to endure hardship, remain under the load. And you've got to do the work of an evangelist. You know what I think he's saying here? I think he's reminding Timothy that no matter what comes, come what may, come what may, we're doing the work of cutting to the quick of the hearts of men. Helping them to understand that they are sinners before God. That they have declared themselves enemies of the God who created them. We have an eternal salvation to declare to humanity. Timothy, don't forget. We're here to do the work. The hard work as it is of an evangelist. We're here for the souls of men. We're not just playing games, Timothy. We're not just juggling. There are eternal souls at stake. Do the work. When does the preacher get to quit? When he has, Paul says, fulfilled his ministry. When he has fulfilled his ministry. You know when that is for Paul? In the next verse, he's going to say, I've been poured out like a drink offering. I'm done. The time of my departure, it's here. It's here. I've run the race, finished the course. I've kept the faith. Timothy, I've fought the battle I'm calling you to fight. When do you get to quit? You get to quit when your ministry is fulfilled. You get to quit when you die. It's not over until you're gone. It's not over until God calls. It's time for your departure. You do it until the king calls you home. So, anybody want that job? Anybody want that job? Over the years, um, well, in the old days, uh, when a pastor would die, they'd bury him in his church. Some more symbolism we've probably lost. They'd bury him in his church. If he was a really good preacher, and by good I mean that he, he brought the word of God. Not that he was a good CEO of management of the organization of the church. Nowadays, you've got to be a better CEO than you do a preacher, frankly. But in the old days, if you were a really good preacher, you, you preached the word. You know what they do with you when you died? They bury you under the pulpit. They bury you under the pulpit. Over the years, the church and the pastorate has become a lot of things. As I said today, uh, you probably need to be a better CEO, a better manager, a better businessman than you do a, a preacher of the word. In Paul's day, the believers clung to each other, church. They clung to each other. Like orphans on a snowy day, they gathered together around the word of God like a warm fire. Today we spend most of our time debating the best way to attract and accommodate whoever will come. And we've turned this whole thing probably into something more, more likened to a, a fast food restaurant. Passing out coupons, making deals, bargains, making the price right. Let me remind you, ours is a solemn charge. The king is returning. We are to be as heralds. 
Ask what you will of your pastor. But this is what God requires. Let's pray. Holy God, we, um, we've had our focus right here this morning. And um, this pastor um, confesses to the congregation that um, the weight of the responsibility, the solemnness of the duty has not always been as heavy as it ought be on this heart. Father, I have resisted. I have resisted the responsibility maybe. Maybe in the, in the name of piety, I have resisted the reverence you give to declaring the word of God. But the truth is, Lord, that it is a solemn duty and a calling. And the weight is sometimes heavy and the load is sometimes unbearable. And there is, as Paul, as Paul knew well, there is often hardship to endure. Oh, Lord, seal it on the heart of this preacher and all those who stand behind pulpits this morning that there is work of evangelism to be done. There are souls at stake. We're not just juggling up here. Father, I, I, uh, I confess to this body that I'm, I'm not good at a whole lot of this managing this organization, leading and delegating. Lord, would you, would you continue to grow in me, however? A heart's desire to see the word proclaimed in season and out of season for men and women to be called to truth, to be shown the sinfulness of their heart, but to be walked alongside with in the grace that has been extended through Jesus. You've been so good to us, God. You've been so good to us. Might I and all those who man a pulpit, herald the good news of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Might we do nothing more and nothing less than preach Christ crucified for the forgiveness of our sins, for our eternal security and destiny, that we might be reckoned unto you, our holy God and creator, Lord, make up for the shortcomings behind this pulpit. Make up for the shortcomings in my attitude, in my spirit, in my giftedness, in my abilities, in my managing, in my leading, in my delegating, in my organizing. Make up for all those things, Lord. But more than anything, Lord, nail me to your word. Don't let me move to the right or to the left. Don't let me add one thing. Don't let me take away one thing. 
Make us a people of your word. Use me as a preacher of your word. By your grace, by your grace we ask and we thank you for your word and its blessings to us. Amen, amen.